It really is a fairy tale story, but I know Liberia is not a fairy tale. I believe 64% of your people still live under the poverty line. There is still, uh, you know, endemic issues, corruption, and you went through the terrible Ebola crisis. Give us an idea of the challenges that you faced and what still remains to be done. You know, I like to always take it back to where we started. We inherited in 2006 a destroyed nation, a pariah state, and we felt we brought it to the place where we restored basic services that have been missing for over two decades. In, in short, we brought Liberia back, back to becoming a nation again, a viable nation. Um, that's, that's no mean feat. And you have obviously decided to stick to your constitution and not run again for a third term. This, this is the constitution. What are you saying by doing that? Because there are plenty of African leaders who are just, you know, dictators for life, presidents for life. I'm sending a strong signal. Not only should we respect the Constitution and the law, but it also says that it's time for generational change. Uh, that we have young people that are vying for leadership, that have the capacity, that have, that have the passion and the capability, and it's time for them to take over. And we have to make way for them. And if we are going to practice democracy, which we all want to do, and we all strive to do, then we've got to do it by example. Since this 2017 CNN interview between the first and currently only democratically elected female president in Liberia and Africa, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, and journalist Christiane Amanpour, intergenerational change has occurred in Liberia with the new presidential administration of renowned former soccer player George Weah. By the way, in sub-Saharan Africa, Soccer is referred to as football. I mean, doesn't it make sense? You're kicking a ball with your foot. Anyways, I digress. Welcome to the Fragmented Whole, where we critique pop culture and current events by examining how communities combine tangible and intangible resources to combat structural inequities. I'm your host, Amarachi, and in today's episode, we'll delve further into season two's theme of hashtag the counter narrative by shining a light on narratives that counter xenophobic rhetoric, ideologies, and policies. This week's episode will explore how Liberia navigated its first peaceful transition of power in more than 70 years. With the contributions of this week's three co-hosts, we'll gain a deeper understanding of the socio-political climate within which the 2017 elections occurred, the challenges that the WIA administration will combat, and hopes for the future. Now, before I jump into discussing the elections or even introducing this week's contributors, let's establish a brief but foundational understanding of Liberia's history. For those of you who aren't the biggest history buffs, by brief, I mean two minutes. To get this week's brief history overview is Liberian-born American journalist and author, Helene Cooper. I believe the history, past, present, and future of a nation is owned by its people. And who better to tell the narrative of Liberia 
than Liberians. If you haven't read Cooper's novels, The House at Sugar Beach or Madam President, then you've got a few books to add to or start your reading list. Take it away, Helene. Liberia, the country of my birth, was founded by freed American slaves in 1822. There was this growing class of freed blacks and freed slaves here in America who had been freed by their owners under the proviso that they leave the United States and go back to Africa. Back to Africa movement is how Liberia came to be. My great, 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 great grandfather, Elijah Johnson, was on the first ship of freed slaves that traveled from New York Harbor in 1820. This country was set up in a very antebellum sort of way where the freed slaves and the freed blacks replicated a similar society to the one that they had fled from in the American South, except now that they were in Africa, they were the upper class and the native Africans who they'd met there became the servants and the help. In 1980, this two-tiered system exploded when there was a military coup. They overthrew and killed the president, President Talbert. They raped so many women who were married to, who were of the elite class. Liberia descended into this very horrible civil war that lasted for almost two decades. And Liberia went through this horrific, horrific period that finally ended in 2003 when Charles Taylor was driven out of the country. 2005, Liberians went to the polls to vote for what many say were the first really open and free elections that the country had had. Uh, Liberians elected a woman president. Like I previously said, the information you just learned does not, by any means capture the multifaceted history of Liberia, but it does provide enough context for you to understand the conversation to come and hopefully compel you to learn more about Liberia independently. I guess from here, I could go on a spiel about high rates of corruption, unemployment, a weak education and infrastructure systems, and high rates of poverty post the Ebola epidemic in Liberia. I could do that, but I won't, because in one form or another, those issues are prevalent globally, even here in the United States. Liberians, those on the continent and abroad, are the owners of this socio-political narrative, which in turn provides us non-Liberians an opportunity to learn from their insight, and of course, on our own. However, I will take it upon myself to let you know that in Liberia, each president can serve no more than two terms of six years each. This mandate differs from here in the United States, where each president can serve no more than two terms of four years each. Can you imagine if the United States presidential tenure policies were the same as Liberia's and some of our former two-term presidents, say Obama or Reagan, had been in office for 12 years as opposed to eight? Let's take a sec to sit with that. Okay, <laughs> let's move along. Now that we've reflected a bit on the past, we can talk about the current political state of Liberia and the endeavors ahead for this West African nation of 4.6 million people. I am honored to introduce three Liberian co-hosts, two in the US and one in the country, whose insight will shape the content presented in this episode. 
I started my conversation with each contributor by asking them to reflect on the legacy of the Sirleaf presidential administration. While they all mentioned to one degree or another Sirleaf's international accolades, which as a matter of fact, let's take a minute to recognize. She is the first democratically elected female president in Liberia and the continent of Africa. The United States hasn't even been able to do that. Not that they should be a marker of esteem. She's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She's erased nearly $5 billion in foreign debt in just three years and attracted foreign investors to Liberia post-Civil War. She peacefully entered, maintained, and exited the presidential office, unlike any man or human being for that matter before her. Wow. The co-host you are about to meet also held former President Sirleaf accountable by acknowledging areas in which her administration fell short. Our first two contributors commented on her inability to successfully pass and or maintain predominantly woman-centered legislation, particularly rape legislation, despite the pivotal role women played in her elections. In October of 2017, the Liberian Senate voted to amend the Liberian Rape Law, which would make rape bailable for all offenses and make rape perpetrators eligible for parole. Currently in Liberia, Rape is non-bailable for first-degree felonies and only bailable if proof is not available. The Senate rationale for the amendment was that the punishment for rape under the existing law was too excessive and therefore unconstitutional. The past amended version of the rape law has been sent to the House of Representatives for a vote. Our first co-host, Ernestine, is a quality assurance supervisor at Octopharma Plasma in Cleveland, Ohio. She was born in Liberia and at the age of nine moved to the United States. Let's take a listen to her thoughts on the shortcomings of this relief administration. Um, I think the hope of her coming in, because a lot of feminists help, helped her into office. So I think they were expecting this great, oh, we have a woman in office now. There's going to be so much change for women, um, which, I mean, there was, like I said, you know, there was some laws and stuff put in place for domestic violence and for uh, rape victims. Um, so in those regards, she kind of lived up to it, even though I did hear um, that the the rape um, legislation that she had got reduced on uh, the sentence that she had um, initially put in place got reduced. Um, but I think uh, they were kind of expecting her to do um, so much more than what she actually did uh, for instance with the infrastructure like I talked about earlier. Didn't really do a good job with, you know, rebuilding the roads um, with electricity and stuff like our infrastructure is still pretty bad. The roads are still pretty bad um, out there and uh, though I haven't been there myself, but many people who I do know who have been back, you know, they're saying the it's better than it was post-Civil War, but it could be better. Our second contributor, Randell, an educator, entrepreneur, and human resource specialist, 
completed her post-secondary studies at Northeastern University and returned to Liberia in 2013. She is currently based in the capital city of Monrovia. Despite former President Sirleaf breaking a quote, glass ceiling, unquote, and becoming the first female president of Liberia, Rendell addressed how gender disparities persisted throughout her administration and remain entrenched in Liberian culture and arguably the world. I think as much as it's almost like when Obama was president, everybody thought if the black lives in Liberia, I mean, in America was just perfect and excellent because we had a black president. I think the misconception is the fact that we had a female president that somehow we had some type of equality or women have a right. Um, under this administration, there was a lot of um, discrimination. There was a lot of, um, you know, things that women had to go through just as much as they did before. Uh, I think we had to fight extra hard. I feel like there was a there was not a lot done for females under this administration as it's, you know, it looked from the outside. I think um, the president did, like I said, as much as she could, but not a lot was done from my personal point of view. And I um, mean, the numbers are there. But I think um, gender in Liberia is still a man's work, sadly. It's still one of those places, even at the university level, where I sat in a room um, with a bunch of people who call themselves PhDs and this and that, like with the deans and all the, the top people at the university. You still hear things that say, I don't expect you to understand it because you're a woman. Um, and I will still hear people talk down to you or say stuff to you, this is not, like almost like this is not your place. Um, I will still have to have conversation or remind people that, you know, sex or gender is just one of those things that you check in a box. Like, you are who you are, whether or not you, you know, you're a male or a female. And people did not understand that for the longest time. And even up to now, little girls are still, you know, left at home or are still selling for their moms while the little boys going to school because it's known that if you invest in your boy, you're going to get a lot more out of him than you, if you do for girls. Um, it's still known that a lot of girls in some counties and places in Liberia where if they're on the period, for example, they, they don't even go to school because they don't have the necessary resources. Um, those are some of the things that I encountered when I was first working just um, with the with NGO or giving back to communities. And I think the gender dynamics in Liberia is one that's very unbalanced. With the recent government having um, a lot more female in the representative and um, the House of Representatives and Senators, we're hoping that there will be a lot more law and a lot more um, change for females in Liberia. With the Vice President, too, um, being a female, we're still, you know, very hopeful. But you never know. I mean, this is Africa, like I like to say, TIA, and, um, but Liberia is very, it's still not there yet. In addition to acknowledging how former President Sirleaf appealed to female constituents with her legislation, I also inquired about the appeal of 51-year-old President Wea to the predominantly youth electorate. For those of you who don't know much about Wea, let me catch you all up on his bio. So after retiring from a highly successful and lucrative football career, aka soccer for us Americans, instead of settling in Europe or America, Wea returned to Liberia. Prior to being elected president in 2017, he unsuccessfully ran for president in 2005 and unsuccessfully ran for vice president in 2011. However, he did successfully serve as a senator for three years. Our third contributor, Peter, is a public health professional currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. P 
Peter is the executive director of the nonprofit, A Healthy Nation, which teaches Liberian children health education and disease prevention strategies. He elaborated on what we as symbolize for the predominantly youth electorate. I think there is one thing that is true about incoming President Weah's election, that he represents the aspirations of the average Liberian. That the Liberians, like especially youth, the youths of Liberia, who make up the majority uh, of the voting bloc. After all, those between the ages of 18 and 35 constitute about 43% minimum, 40-43% of the electorate. That, that's pretty significant. Well, we are, it's only 51 years old. It's just 15 years older than the, the, the ceiling of that majority voting block. And so the, the see we are, they, they read his history or they've, they've been alive, their parents were alive. In, in the mid-80s, when we came of age and started his soccer career, uh, both parents uneducated. Um, and, and for him to rise to such international prominence and then come back home at the end of the war, uh, rather than live in Europe or America with millions of dollars, he decided he would return to Liberia. They see in his, in his biography um, the possibilities that could be available to them. And so he is that inspirational candidate. And Liberians say to themselves, you know, if he could come from a background of poverty, if he could come from a place that by all measures is a slum, and he could make something of himself and would come back home and try to elevate standard of living for his people, maybe, just maybe, it can be true about me. And so they put their trust in him. Now, that is not without risk, I will add. It is not without risk. But that, for me, explains uh, the incoming We Are Presidency. Randell shared Peter's commentary on the dominant role the youth played in Weah's election by commenting on how his fresh emergence on the Liberian political scene, in addition to his professional athletic background, attracted young voters. I think a huge, a huge influence. Um, the young people in Liberia are very, uh, the youth, as they call themselves, um, they are, because the youth age is very huge here, I think up to like 30-something, they still consider youth. The young people in Liberia are very um, driven towards sports and politics. Um, a lot of times you see a lot of people gather around, um, they're talking about football, nine or ten times, or they're talking about politics. So this election, they were definitely engaged, they were definitely um, a part of it. And I think a lot of them, considering that they like football and there was a soccer star, a lot of them, this was like their, their role model. This was an idol. This was someone that they've looked up to for a longer time. Also, the frustration of just being tired. Almost every single person that was running, except for the new um, person in this race, who was um, Cummings that came from Coca-Cola, who was a businessman. Um, almost all of the other people were people names that we've heard before. From the time you were a younger kid growing up, the same people over and over. It was almost like a recycled group of people. In looking forward to the future of Liberia, my co-host had an abundance of insight to share about the challenges the WE administration may and will face. When I asked Ernestine about the top challenges facing the WE administration, she went straight for the economy and infrastructure. Let's take a listen. Okay. 
well, the most obvious one um, is definitely going to be rebuilding the economy after um, the Ebola crisis. Um, a lot of the investors and a lot of the people and foreign aid that we kind of got in under um, Ellen Johnson's um, presidency, most of them are gone, um, and they left because of the Ebola crisis. I mean, that's to be said. Um, so I think him coming into office, one of the top challenges he will face is re uh, rebuilding the economy, um, kind of bringing in jobs, domestic and foreign. Um, the fact that, and when my mom told me this, and I had to look it up, the fact that we import 80% of our food, including our staple food, rice, I was kind of shocked. So I went to look it up, and indeed we do. That's really, that's something that we have to improve on. Um, something like rice that Africans, well, Liberians, we eat every single day should definitely not be imported. That's something we need to be, you know, we need to be growing ourselves and our own people need to be supplying that to our own people. Um, so I think maybe he would need to renegotiate some contracts, um, get rid of some investors that maybe are not there for the right reasons or just there for profit and gain um, and bringing in new people. Um, another challenge that I think you might face um, is finishing up the infrastructure. Um, that is really important um, in order to keep the jobs that will be coming in, in order to bring new jobs that are coming in, in order to improve um, communication systems um, that needs to be improved. Um, kind of raising the morale overall of the country, um, I think, will be a big challenge of uh, proving that he won't follow the footsteps of other leaders and be corrupt, thinking more about the money that's about to go in his pocket versus actually doing the job of a president. Um, so definitely putting people's minds at ease is another challenge that I think he will face um, in his first six years of office. In the aftermath of all my conversations with my co-hosts, on Monday, January 29th, President Wiga issued his first State of the Nation address to the 54th Legislature. In this address, he laid out his administration's plans on such topics as education, health, the economy, and more. In addition to reducing his salary and benefits by 25%, President Wea intends to revitalize the Liberian economy and improve infrastructure by building a $3 billion coastal road to connect the country's capital, Monrovia, to the distant Southeast region. He provided details on this project during the State of the Nation address. That my immediate strategy for reducing poverty, increasing youth empowerment through job creation and training, improving the productivity of our economy, is to embark upon a comprehensive road and highway construction program that will link all counties 
capital with all weather pay primary roles. They will be built to the highest international standard. And link to pay secondary farm to market role that will enhance agriculture, trade, and tourism in Liberia. Particular priority will be given to a coastal highway that will run from Bikana to Hapo. We eventually end the complete isolation of the southeastern region, Liberia. A condition that has existed since the formation of this country. There is a medium-term project that will take several years to complete. But it is the intention of my government to prioritize the planning and raising of funding for this important development goal, which has been estimated to the cost approximately three billion United States dollars. This is going to be very challenging, but I'm convinced that with the assistance of my friendly government and institution, this can be achieved before the end of my tenure. In addition to discussing areas of economic development, Peter, Ernestine, and Randell commented on the role the Liberian diaspora can play in the economic revitalization of Liberia. Peter specifically remarked on the appeal of tax incentives and or relocation incentives and attracting Liberians of the diaspora back to the country. Well, I, I think that Liberia has to be open for business so that Liberians in the diaspora who want to return home and engage in private sector enterprise can do so. Uh, there has to be incentives, whether they are tax incentives uh, for Liberians to be able to come home, there has to be those kind of incentives presented to Liberians uh, or people of Liberian origin to be able to come home. I think that tax incentives certainly uh, can go a long way in attracting Liberian businessmen and women. I think relocation incentives, uh, and, and I couldn't begin to think about all the contours of, of those uh, instruments, but they are available and it's up to the policymakers to, to think through the details and so that it's a win-win situation both for the government and for the Liberians who choose to, uh, to maximize those, those instruments. But, you know, tax incentives, relocation packages for Liberians who want to go home, whether they're in the private sector or are joining the administration as technocrats to be able to, provide, to, be able to shepherd the president's national, uh, national development uh, priorities. Those will certainly go a long way in attracting Liberians. But I also think that, you know, the people, the president and his lieutenant have to be alert um, and, and reach out, put out, you know, a call and say, hey, if you have expertise in engineering, if you are a doctor, if you are uh, a CPA, if you are a development economist, we need you. Send us your resume. You know, send us an e here is um, a central depository of resumes. Why don't you send your resume here? And here is 
an HR team, a seasoned HR team that will review these documents. And if we identify an area where you're qualified, we will be in touch with you and we will make every effort to get you to come home and to make your contribution. Now, that may sound a little naive, but if I were a policymaker, I would give you a shot. On the other hand, Ernestine commented on the contribution of intellectual capital by Liberians of the diaspora and the need for greater camaraderie amongst Liberians to promote nationalism. I think, and this is, again, purely my thought on it, I think more um, people, more Liberians who left uh, will be coming back will be bringing resources, um, intellectual capital, mainly, to the country. And that will greatly help us. Um, our people have, I don't know if you've ever heard of the crab syndrome. Can we uh, elaborate? You put a bunch of crabs in a bucket, and you never have to leave um, the lid on because those crabs are going to stay in there from morning to night. Reason being, um, as one crab is starting to climb up out of the bucket, another one is going to grab it and bring it down and try to climb on top of it. And that's going to continue, and nobody's going to get out of the bucket. So that's always been the biggest issue i think with um the lack of progress and the lack of growth in my uh, in my country um it's that crab syndrome um i would like to say um so i think with this new era that we're coming upon um i think more people will go in and they will bring what they have to the table and people are going to be open and receptive to it. I think after 170 years of craziness, people are finally ready to get it together. People want to see their country do better, um, especially since people that are here, I know a lot of Liberians that are here in America, you know, they're getting more and more frightened with, with all of America's stuff that's going on, you know. Um, the threats of wars and stuff, and just the the the, the daily confusion. The um, current president that we have in office. Um, I think all of that is making people think, "Hey, I need to go back home, and I need to rebuild my home, and I need to make it a place where I can be able to raise my family, or you know, have businesses." Randell shared Ernestine's sentiments on fostering camaraderie amongst Liberians by commenting on the need for Liberians in the country to be more welcoming of Liberian returnees who aim to altruistically invest in their home. Um, I think I think that's some of that's some of the um, the issues that I discuss when I say like um, there has to be a, a lot more. Um, monitoring from the diaspora, at least paying attention. A lot of people leave and they turn their back on like they're completely. And I wouldn't blame them because a lot of people leave here not in a great state to say, okay, I'm going to visit the U.S. A lot of people left here, like my family, they left as refugees. They left for a better opportunity. They left because there was a war. So nobody voluntarily just left Liberia. A lot of people were forced out because they were trying to, to literally save their lives. So I think for people to return home, there's a lot of traumatic experiences that they, they had here. And some people left 
saying that I'm not coming back or they don't have any good experiences coming here. And I think for Liberia to be more, Liberians that live in Liberia needs to be more welcoming for those people that are coming back. First and foremost, the law, the legal, from a legal standpoint, the constitutional Liberia does not allow dual citizenship. That's something that has to be discussed because people that leave from here for better opportunity to live in the States, obviously they get documentation. Some people get the American citizenship. Some people get green card, whatever you have to do. So that especially for the opportunities that are open to vote in America so that you make changes on your family lives to be able to get financial aid and other things that people do. Um, that's just from personal experience. But other people have different reasons. But Liberia does not allow dual citizenship. So Liberians in the diaspora are almost already considered not Liberians. So coming home to Liberia and being told that you're not Liberian, even though you, you've maintained your heritage, America, one of the, the great things about it, it makes, I mean, it's a mixing bowl. It's like a salad. Even if you mix everything else up, you still get to maintain your heritage. People are still speaking at their native tomb. People are still who they are. Despite all of its negative connotation that come with being American, sometimes that you can still maintain that. And for Liberians that live in Liberia, when you come home and they tell you you're not Liberian, I think... It's almost like a slap in the face because all this time you were in America, you've been trying to come home. You've been saying, I'm going back home. That's the word that I use all the time, back home, back home, back home. And then when you get home and say, y'all are, y'all are American, hurry right, and go back to America. And, you know, you almost feel like you're not part of something. It's almost like you're visiting. And it's different when you're visiting the home than when you actually live there. Then you can actually invest in that place, if that makes sense. Whether the ideas of our co-hosts will actually come to fruition, only time will tell. But the future will come, and our contributors have got a number of hopes for it. My hope for Liberia, um, I definitely hope that as a country we can get out of being a developing nation to finally being a developed nation. I want us to have Liberian-owned things. Um, I don't want us importing 80% of our food from foreign countries and foreign nations. I want to see us travel more, experience the world, and, and learn and grow instead of being stuck um, in that one spot, not really experiencing life the way how life should be experienced. I just, I want opportunities, more opportunities for us. Um, And I definitely just want to see us get out of that um, self-deprecating mindset um, and knowing that we can do more, believing in ourselves um, and knowing that If we put our minds to it, we can definitely achieve some great things um, as a country. I would say that, uh, and I'll speak directly um, to Liberians uh, first, that the future is not without its challenging, but the future is not all challenging. The future is bright. Because, as I've said before, our best future is a democratic future. And the fact that at this moment in time, we are having a peaceful transition of political power, it speaks volumes to where we are headed. We're headed to a peaceful, prosperous, dynamic future. I would say to all of your listeners from other sub-Saharan African countries that Liberia 
as the first independent republic on the continent. The Lone Star Nation is shining bright again, and I invite all other sub-Saharan Africans to look to Liberia's example and see the possibilities for constitutional democracy. Continued food for thought that will hopefully compel continued acts of reform and activism. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode of The Fragmented Whole as we explore the ties that unite and divide us to ourselves, our peers, and the environment. We are three weeks away from the first live audio recording of The Fragmented Whole on Wednesday, February 28th. Again, Wednesday, February 28th. One more time. Wednesday, February 28th, market calendars at Blue Stockings Bookstore in Manhattan. The recording will take place from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please join me as we view and discuss the 2016 documentary, Kanju, and expand our understanding of globalism, nationalism, and narrative framing. Shout out to Marshallese Jedi for the music used throughout this episode and Squarespace for the website design and assistance. I'd also like to reference OK Africa, LNTV Liberia Live, History 5, BBC, Front Page Africa, The Daily Observer, CNN, almost done (laughs) y'all, The Guardian, and Fabric Radio FM 101.1 for the content presented in this episode. This episode would not have been possible without my three co-hosts, Randell, Peter, and Ernestine. If you'd like to continue the conversation with Randell, you can find her on Instagram at Zuleka underscore, that is Z-U-L-E-K-A. You can find her on Facebook at Zuleka Dalda and Twitter at Randy, that is R-A-N-D-I rap, at Randy Rap. Randell also operates the blog www.libs, that is L-I-B, as in boy, E-S, positive.com www.libspositive.com To keep the conversation going with Peter, you can find him on LinkedIn at Peter Pay. That is P-A-Y-E. He also blogs on Liberian life at www.liberiansolutions.com To learn more about his nonprofit organization, A Healthy Nation, be sure to visit www healthynation.org. Last but not least, you can stay in contact with Ernestine via Facebook at Ernestine Don, that is Z-A-H-N. Be sure to follow The Fragmented Whole on Facebook and Instagram at The Fragmented Whole, that is W-H-O-L-E, and Twitter at Fragment underscore Whole. You can also find this information on the official website, www.thefragmentedwhole.com. You can also follow me on IG at hella underscore chic, C-H-I-C, chic, not chick, <laughs> and Facebook at Amarachi Anacaronye. Tune in next Monday for the newest episode of The Fragmented Whole, where we piece together the news and self. Until next time, I'm Amarachi, a fragmented whole, and I'm signing out. Be safe, y'all.